Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. You may have noticed by now that I actually released two episodes this week. That's because recently I had the special opportunity to screen the new documentary from Magnolia Pictures, Cold Case Hammershold, which tells the story of one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in history. Not only that, but I was also given the opportunity to interview the film's director, Mads Brueger. So this week I decided to release one of my regular storytelling episodes about the death of UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, as well as this bonus episode featuring my interview with the film's director. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mads Brueger, the director of Cold Case Hammarskjöld. So Mads Brueger. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, on my show, The Conspirators, I like to tell stories about historical mysteries and other dark events from the past. So when I got a chance to see your film I was and talk to you about it, I was really excited. And I want to tell you right away, I love the film very much. It was really eye-opener for me. Thank you so much, Nate. Can you um, tell my listeners who may not be familiar with your work a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, I uh, am uh, based in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, I am uh, a, a journalist. I work in uh, talk radio in Denmark, in the equivalent of uh, NPR in Denmark. Um, and on the side, I do uh, documentaries uh, mainly. Uh, previously, I have done a film about uh, North Korea and a film about uh, the selling and buying of diplomatic titles between third world countries and wealthy Westerners. Can you, um, so, of course, the, we're talking about Cold Case Hammerschuld. Can you tell my listeners um, who was Doc Hammerschuld and what were the events leading up to his death? For sure. Uh, Doc Hammerschuld was the second UN Secretary General, um, and he is today perceived as the gold standard of, uh, of what a UN Secretary General should be. He is uh, the person who very much defined the United Nations uh, as an organization. And um, during his reign from the early 50s uh, and onwards, uh, decolonization happened in uh, uh, large parts of Africa and Asia as well. And he very much involved himself in uh, these newly independent countries and saw it as the United Nations' most important task to protect these countries from their old colonial masters and also assist and help them, which uh, gradually made him, you know, a nuisance for uh, old world powers such as the UK and France. And all this uh, crystallized uh, during the um, Katsanka crisis, when uh, Katsanka, the eastern province of the Congo, declared independence and a um, civil war broke out. And um, that was basically a war between uh, the Congolese government and a giant Belgian uh, British mining corporation named Union Minière, who was running uh, Katanga as their own system. 
And uh, Da Kammerschuld uh, involved himself in brokering a peace deal, but also uh, used UN forces to bring Katanka back to the UN, uh, uh, a military operation which backfired. And then in December 61, he flies in personally to uh, meet with uh, the warlord who was in charge of Katanka. And uh, just as the plane is about to uh, land in the uh, a town, a small mining town named Endola, uh, it crashes and Nakamashul dies. There, oh, well, there's a line right towards the beginning of the film where you describe this as either the world's biggest murder mystery or the world's most idiotic conspiracy. Which I actually, it's a line I love. What um, was it that drew you to the case of Doc Hammerschild? And what did you actually mean by that statement? Well, um, it is, you know, and, and, and remains. Uh, a, a mystery what really happened uh, regarding the death of, of Dark Hammerschild. Uh, already, you know, two days after the uh, plane crash, um, the former uh, American president, Harry S. Truman, was uh, interviewed in New York Times, and he said, quote, uh, Dark Hammerschild was doing an important job when they killed him, and then he paused and continued these notices that I said when they killed him. And then he refused to elaborate on whom they are. And uh, ever since, there has been a lot of rumors, whispers, and shadows about a conspiracy to kill Dark Hammerschild. You could easily spend your entire life, you know, studying all the details of the case. And there are, you know, within the, the realm of Dark Hammerschild's murder mysteries, several schools who subscribe to various uh, theories. Um, these days, because of archives opening up um, and uh, the main witnesses having reached an age where they are not afraid to spill the beans, it is becoming more and more apparent that Bakamashild was in fact assassinated. Um, but the most important questions, of course, remain: you know, who who ordered the killing and and how was it done? And uh, so it's part, you know, conspiracy theory for senior citizens and part conspiracy reality. Well, that's something else my listeners are definitely interested in, actually. Um, throughout the film, you're accompanied by an investigator by Goran Bjorkdahl. Can you tell my uh, listeners a bit about his story yes. and why he became interested in the mystery? Well, actually, Goran Bjorkdahl is the reason why I became in, involved in the Dark Hammerschild and uh, the supposed or alleged killing of the Hammerschild, because back in 2011, I read an article about how this private Swedish researcher was traveling around uh, in the area where the plane crashed, uh, interviewing the remaining black witnesses, people whom nobody spoke to back then. Uh, and uh, he had tracked down approximately 11 black witnesses whom, you know, tell a very different story from the official version. Many of them saw uh, another plane in the air shooting at the commercials plane. Uh, they encountered uh, uh, white soldiers uh, in and around the crash area almost immediately afterwards, uh, telling them to, to leave the area. And uh, I thought this is highly interesting, and I invited Jörn to come and meet with me in Denmark. And, um, you know, I, I, I met the, in many ways, the opposite of the stereotypical, you know, conspiracy theorist. He's a very thorough, very clear-minded researcher, and uh, I immediately became captivated with uh, with Jörn and uh, and his uh, his quest for finding the truth about Dark Hammerschild. 
Yeah, that was one of the things actually I found really interesting. I, I before I saw the film, I had no, no, I heard a little bit about the case of Doc Hammarskjöld, but honestly, the one thing that I, I think I'd read in the past was that his plane had been bombed out of, had, had, had had a bomb on board, and bombed out of the air. But then I realized after watching your film, no, I mean, you point very clearly that it seems that a, that another plane had been ordered to go out and shoot him out of the sky. Uh, you uh, at one point yes. um, have an interview. You at one point have an interview with a and former NSA officer named Charles Southall, and he had a really interesting story to tell. If you could share that. Yes, uh, South, Southall was uh, based uh, on Cyprus um, on a U.S. Navy uh, radio relay station and uh, was asked by the base commander to uh, come to the station around midnight. Uh, he was told something interesting is about to happen. So uh, he goes to the uh, to the uh, station, and uh, there they receive a recording from, uh, as he phrases it, somewhere down in Africa, um, where you can uh, actually, you know, hear um, a, according to Charles Southall, a Belgian mercenary pilot known as the Lone Ranger shooting at Dark Hammarskjöld's plane and then confirming the plane is on fire and soon after it has crashed. And that recording was processed and then sent to Washington, never to be heard or seen again, um, which is a, 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 you know highly interesting and very important uh, testimony. And uh, I consider Southall to be uh, very credible. Well, Certainly, been former NSA operative, he would be. One um, uh, that actually led me to something else that really struck me was the fact that, you know, the very lo- the very biggest piece of evidence, the plane itself, they went ahead and just buried it in a field. <laughs> and there's a one point in the film, you and Yoren actually head out to that field with a metal detector and some shovels, hoping to dig it up. But can you tell all my listeners what happened next? Well, um, for a long time, it was supposed that. Most of the wreckage actually burned. There was a huge fire almost immediately after the crash. But actually, you know, 70, approximately 70% of the wreckage uh, was, you know, um, it, it was in bits and pieces, but, but was more or less intact, you know, after the crash. But all this was bulldozed into the ground within the airport. And Jörn uh, Bjergdahl managed to find photos of the bulldozing of the wreckage into the ground at an archive in Oxford in UK. And thanks to these photos and a missile detector, we were, we were able to triangulate, you know, where the wreckage is buried. And uh, then we began, you know, uh, with our shovels to, uh, to, uh, to dig for the wreckage. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, eventually we were told digging for it. Um, Partly because you know you, you can't have people digging for wreckage right next to the runway at a at, a, sure. at an airport, basically. I think. Sure. If, um, if, do you know if there's ever been any other attempts to since then or before then to try and dig the plane up? I mean, obviously there's always the issue. It's right next to an airport, but no, I don't think so. I think Gern and I were the the first to actually dig for the uh, for the wreckage. Um, one of the other major directions your investigation takes you to is to a man named Keith Maxwell, whom, when you described him, I have to admit he sounded like a James Bond villain to me. He even ran his own um, shadowy paramilitary organization. Can you tell my listeners who was Keith Maxwell, Maxwell, and what was the South African Maritime Research Institute? 
Well, Maxwell is, in my mind, uh, the you know ultimate villain, and as you say, he is right out of a uh, Ian Fleming or John Le Carré uh, spy thriller, and in many ways, he remains an enigma. Um, he was um, the last known commander of a sinister uh, South African underground militia uh, named the South African uh, Maritime Research Institute, or in short, SIMA. Um, very little is known about that organization. It became you know, known to the public during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in South Africa after the fall of the apartheid regime, where a set of documents were, was uh, released by the uh, CRC to the press uh, allegedly coming from Saima, uh, outlining Optat um, Tilda Kamashul. And um, uh, Maxwell uh, appeared uh, approximately seven years earlier in a South African newspaper where he presents himself as the Commodore of Saima. And um, According to Maxwell, Steimer is an ancient organization, approximately 200 years old, originally formed by a group of British mariners. Um, for quite a while, it has been considered, you know, uh, more or less an established fact that Maxwell was probably the only member of Steimer, and, and that Steimer was a figment of his imagination, and, and that these documents were something Maxwell was producing by himself. But as we discover in the film, there were other members of Steimar, and uh, we get a hold of a list of names of men who uh, applied to efforts taken out by Steimar in South African newspapers to be mercenaries. And when you call these men 30 years later, they are still very reluctant to talk about Steimar. Uh, they are afraid to, to spill the beans, which suggests that Steimar was something, you know, real. And um, we also discovered that Maxwell was running a number of clinics in uh, the Black Townships where he was posing as a medical doctor without having any medical training whatsoever, running weird experiments on his black patients. Um, what we also can say for sure is that he was obsessed with the HIV virus using uh, AIDS as a biological weapon to uh, eradicate black people. Um, and, um, you know, he is uh, uh, partly, you know, a buffoonish and, but also demonic character. And also at the same time, seemed, you know, he seemed to have been highly intelligent and also extremely dangerous. Well, yeah, that, uh, that actually leads directly to my next question, which is actually talking about a former Steimer worker named Dagmar Fail. Can you tell my listeners who was she and what happened to her? Well, Dagmar was recruited into Steimer uh, by a, uh, a Steimer operative. Uh, that is not in the film, but it was a man named uh, Mark, who was the boyfriend of Dagmar. He was uh, a graduate from a university in uh, South Africa, specializing in marine biology. And uh, according to her relatives, uh, her brother, who is uh, still alive, he um, was doing research, medical and clinical research for Saima. And um, 
she went to Mozambique, where she was uh, running a vaccination program or taking part in a vaccination program for Simar. And during this um, mission, she discovers that these vaccines are contaminated, uh, according to the brother of uh, Dagmar, contaminated with HIV virus. And because of this, she wants to leave Simar and inform the authorities. But uh, shortly be before she is to do so, she is assassinated. Uh, uh, and uh, the killers were never found. The uh, the murder was not investigated. Uh, the uh, mother of uh, Dagmar would spend the rest of her life trying to uh, to find out what happened to her daughter, and um, that remains a you know a cold case within the cold case. Why Dagmar Taylor was uh, murdered? Yeah, that, that was one of my that was one of the most interesting parts I found in the film there, um, especially. Some of the things they found that her mother actually found out in her own investigation. I don't want to spoil too much about that for my own listeners. I really hope they don't check out the film. Maybe I can backtrack a little bit here. One of the things I really liked about the film in general is the way you frame it. You start off actually by showing up in a hotel room, dressed all in white, the same way, kind of theatrical way that Keith Maxwell would have done so. And you're throughout the film, you're giving notes to a, to a pair of stenographers who are typing them down for you. Can you, um, tell, uh, can you explain what gave you the idea to kind of frame the film in this manner? Well, partly because we only have one picture of Maxwell. So uh, the only way of visualizing Maxwell was, uh, you know, through uh, animation and then also me performing as Maxwell or dressing like he did. Uh, according to uh, a witness, Maxwell always dressed in white. Um, it's also a way of, you know, performing or visualizing uh, so, uh, colonial relations, uh, interracial relations. Um, but then also the basic idea was to have the two stenographers as a Greek chorus, then being the avatars uh, of the audience uh, and uh, asking, you know, essential and important questions as we go along. Um, and um, another reason is I, I knew quite early on that the film would be, you know, of narration, so I was looking for a device which would make the narration more entertaining and uh, and uh, cinematic. Yeah, so I, I really like it. I admit, at first it took me a bit to understand where you were going with it, but then I realized, oh, you're, um, you're uh, it's a way to open up and see your thought processes throughout, and it actually was really enjoyable. Yes. To see. Um, it's a very transparent so. way of uh, of uh, making making a film. Yeah, it worked it worked really well. Um, right at the end of the film, you see um, Joran Bjorkdahl quite literally sailing off into the horizon on a boat. He's heading off to look for some of Simer's other hidden laboratories. Um, have you kept in touch with him since then? And do you know if he's uncovered or anything else? Joran is uh, still. Joran was traveled down the Congo River to look for uh, a laboratory which Maxwell writes about in his fictionalized memoirs. But finding that laboratory is like looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack, because you know the Congo is enormous. But uh, I'm sure his uh, quest will uh, continue. Well, Matt, well, um, just to wrap things up, I just want to thank you again for taking so much, taking the time to talk to me, and you know, I'm telling my listeners about your film, Cold Case Hammersfield. I really, really hope everybody gets a chance to see it here in the United States. It's in theaters and available on on demand right now. Thanks again, Mansberger, for joining us. Thank you so much, Nate. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening to this bonus episode. If you haven't done so yet, I encourage you to download and listen to my regular episode about the life and death of Doc Hammerschold. I also highly recommend you check out the documentary, Cold Case Hammerschold, which is currently available in select theaters around the U.S., as well as on demand. Thanks again.